If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Mark, second book in the New Testament, the Gospel according to Mark, and chapter 14. Mark 14. We're going to spend the next three Sundays considering the events of one day, uh, namely of the Friday that Jesus was crucified. Um, My original plan was to be in the Garden of Gethsemane for uh, one Sunday, but we're going to be in the Garden for two Sundays, um, and then we will spend some time on the road to the cross, um, and then thinking about the crucifixion as well. That will be in two weeks, and then on on Good Friday as well as we head towards Easter. Um, The way I can say that that's all happening on one Friday is because we we would consider that Friday the way that the Jewish people would count a day. And so we often think about midnight as the transition from one day uh, to the next, but the Jewish people would still today consider that a day uh, begins and ends not with the the rising of the sun, but with the the setting of the sun. So today, when the sun goes down, um, Sunday will be over, and we will go to sleep in Monday. It will be Monday already. Um, and so as we enter into the, the context of this passage in Mark 14 and we think about what's going on that Friday, we find that Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Passover after the sun set on Thursday, and, and it is now dark, and so they are celebrating the Passover on that Friday. Um, the next day after all of these events would be Saturday, and then the, the Sabbath day, and then the following Sunday would be the day of Jesus' resurrection. So if you ever wonder how he was in the tomb for three days, he was taken off the cross before um, sunset that Friday, and then was in the grave um, all day Saturday um, into when the sun set on Saturday and Sunday began that that evening. Uh, Those are the the three days that he was in the tomb. Um, This is uh, after Judas left then is where we're coming in. Judas has left. Jesus, Jesus predicts the denial of Peter, and then Jesus and his disciples take a walk. They go to the nearby uh, Mount of Olives, and then to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, John's Gospel, if you read John's Gospel, he has this significant chunk of teaching that happens between uh, John 13 and, and John 18. There's a, a large chunk of teaching in the upper room, and then on the way to the Mount of Olives. But we're just looking at the Garden of Gethsemane, which is actually all that that Mark records, that teaching is nowhere else except for in the Gospel of John. There's a sort of a focus here on, on Gethsemane. And in particular, I want, to fo- want us to focus on what we just sang, which is how we can learn from Jesus in the garden how to pray. Uh, and I want to be careful with that because when we go to the garden, there's a, there's a lot going on. Um, I don't want to take Jesus' anguish in the garden and then turn it into some points about more powerful and effective prayer. We need to acknowledge that there's something deep going on here. I don't want to gloss over the agony in the garden as Jesus considers the prospect of being crucified. Um, I think we often think about the suffering of Jesus as simply when he is on the cross. And yet it happens and seems to begin in a deep way here in the garden. It may even be that in some sense he is taking on the sins of the world in this moment, that this is when he begins to drink the cup of God's wrath against our sins. But in that agony, he he models for us how we can call out to God the Father, even in our own anguish, in our own despair and pain. 
I think this is a lesson in praying, not necessarily in praying for others, what we would call intercessory prayer, um, but rather it's a picture of what prayer would look like when we are distressed, uh, when we are troubled, when we are sorrowful. How do you pray when you are overwhelmed by life? When the bottom of your life sort of drops out and you're not sure what to do. When God would seem absent from you. Um, when you don't understand what God is doing or why he is doing what he is doing. I think in the garden, Jesus is teaching us um, how to pray when we know that we should pray, but we just don't know how to pray. We don't even know how to get started. When we know it's what we're supposed to do, but we just don't have any words to say in that moment. I, I don't know about you. I've been there. Um, I've said to my wife before going to bed, let's pray together. And because of just the stress of the day or a particular circumstance that we're involved in, I don't have any words to form. Um, I've begun many prayers saying, Father, and that's about as far as I get. And I don't have anything else to say. I don't know what else to say because... No words will form in my mouth. I think there are a lot of reasons that we struggle in prayer. You know, people say if you want to see how someone's doing in their spiritual life, ask them how their prayer life is, and most people feel convicted. I think there's a lot of reasons we struggle with that. Sometimes we neglect it because we just don't recognize its value. And thinking about that, we could go back to Mary of Bethany, um, that we saw, who we saw last week. Often I think we are more like Martha, we're more like Judas. Um, we, we are more drawn to tangible acts of service, to relief of the poor. But sitting at Jesus' feet and, and praying uh, to him, it just, being like Mary, it feels, it feels sort of fruitless. Like we need to be doing something, right? And so Jesus, through Mary's example, calls us to see the value of things that are despised in the world. Of sitting at Jesus' feet, of praying and worshiping him. And today, Jesus reminds us that, that prayer is not our last resort but it's our best response to the stress and the pain of life. That, that's, I guess, how I want to summarize the passage. There's so much here, but that, that prayer is not our last resort. That's what we often think of it as. Uh, prayer is not our last resort, but it's actually the best response to the stress and the pain of life. Your best response to stress and pain isn't to try to figure out how to get out of it all the time. Certainly there's practical things that we need to do, but prayer is not our last resort. In fact, it's the best response to the stress and the pain of life. It is never wasted. Of course, seeing the value of prayer, say I can convince you of the value of prayer, doesn't necessarily translate into actual prayer, especially in the midst of all the, the raw emotions and pain of life. Understanding the value of something doesn't always move us to action. Knowing that something is better doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to do something different. We know that because we know exercise is good for us, and we don't all exercise. We know it would be good to clean the dishes and do the dishes before we go to bed, but we don't always do it. We know it would be wise to do our taxes before April 14th, but that doesn't mean that we all have them done, right? So we know the, the benefit of doing these things, but we don't do it because our desires and our feelings, and they often overrule our, our own heads. As followers of Jesus, we, we know the value of prayer. We feel the need to pray. We want to be people of prayer. We love quotes about the power of prayer. But sometimes we just don't know what to do. We don't know how to start. And sometimes it's because we're just a little overwhelmed. And I think Jesus here gives us help in the starting part of prayer and continuing in prayer, especially in the storms of life.
So I want to read Mark 14, 32 to 42. We're probably going to focus just on 32 to 35 this morning, and we'll be in the rest next um, week. But I want to read the whole passage. So Mark 14, beginning in verse 32. And they, speaking of the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell down, he fell on the ground, and, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Again, our big idea, prayer is not the last resort, but our best response to the stress and pain of life. When reading this passage, I find it so interesting that Mark says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. It's a place that no one really knew up to that point necessarily. It's a very familiar to us, but I imagine at this point it's just, it's just another place, a grove of olive trees outside of Jerusalem. And yet as Jesus enters into this place on this occasion, he marks it forever as the place that he prayed the night before he was crucified. And as I thought about that, as we are learning from Jesus Christ to pray, I think we begin by seeing the importance of place in prayer. The importance of place in prayer. I'm going to give you four thoughts about surrounding coming into prayer. And the first is the importance of place or location in, in prayer. That may sound strange. Hopefully it will make sense by the time we get done talking about it. Jesus' itinerant lifestyle, he's, he's moving from town to town. He's never in one Place It must have meant that he didn't necessarily have a specific place in which he always prayed. He didn't have a house with a room and a closet where he always went to pray. Often it, we're told in the Gospels that he went to remote places. He just tried to get away from everyone to go and to pray. And the fact that Judas, when he comes with uh, the soldiers, when he shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane, that must mean that he knew this place, and that Jesus often came to this place. It was a place of, of retreat. It was a place of solitude and, and relative privacy. It was a place where he could call out to his Father without fear, a place away from the eyes and the ears of other people. And, and that would have been so important to Jesus, don't you think? I mean, think about the life of Jesus where people are always surrounding him. The crowds are always thronging to Jesus. How important a place like Gethsemane and other places like Gethsemane would have been. A place of, of privacy, a place of quiet, a place to be with the Father. And of course, the demands on our lives are not like Jesus, um, nowhere near it. 
And yet we need places like Gethsemane. We need places that we can be alone and that we can pray. You know, often people talk about the benefit of having sort of a consistent place for spending time in the Word and in prayer. It's There's something habit-forming about having that. Maybe it's a chair that you always sit in or the desk that you're always at. You know, a place to put your your coffee or your tea or your energy drink, depending on, on who you are. Um, a, a place and a time that will be quiet and free from distraction, or at least somewhat close to it. Um, probably early in the morning, especially in my house. you got to be up before everyone else is or there is no quiet. Um, and I commend that to you. It's not, it's not a magic formula, finding this place. It's not, uh, you know, that's going to solve all the stress in my life. But it's, it's right to find a place to start our day, to remind ourselves what's most important, um, to invest time in communion with the Father. But I think actually what's going on here is a little bit different than that. There is a place to be in the Word and prayer, but there's something unique about this place. It's not just that. It's this place to, to cry out to the Father in a deep way, a place to be alone. I don't know, if you're like me, there's very few places that you can find like that. In my house, um, maybe the bathroom, but, you know, we've got six people that are using that right now, so you can't stay in there very long and have the the sense of quiet and aloneness. Um, I enjoy going to coffee shops to work and to study and to meet with others, but at the same time, that's different. Starbucks and Center Goss don't want me kneeling on the floor and, and praying and Probably rightfully so. I don't blame them for that. And so from time to time, we need places like Gethsemane. We need to drive somewhere. We need to walk into the woods or some field or just, you know, sit in our car in a parking lot where no one else is and speak to the Father. Maybe to come here. Maybe to come to this place. This is your church. It's a, a place of prayer on Sundays, but hopefully not just Sundays. A place where we could come. We could arrange to be here and and to pray on our own. I'm hoping to talk to the elders. I'd love to see that happen even just on a quarterly basis, that we picked a day and we said, you know, the church is going to be open for these hours. Not that this is a special place to come to pray, but just the, the act of getting in your car and driving somewhere with the specific purpose of spending time alone with God in prayer in a place other than your house where everything is calling out to you and telling you the other things that you need to do but a place to be in silence and solitude with God. I don't know, maybe your house isn't as rowdy as mine. Not everyone's is. And so your place might be a room or a, a closet, but it might, just be a, it might just be a place where your phone is not, so, <laughs> or where your television is not. There's a beautiful thing that a room can become a Gethsemane just by unplugging a few things from our lives. The importance of place. This this may seem like a strange thing to focus on, but I think sometimes we set ourselves up for failure when we try to pray because of the place that we choose to pray in. Um, we need to understand our weaknesses, our, our tendency to be distracted, and, and how finding a place of prayer will help us in, in our weaknesses. Now, with all that said, let me remind you that, that prayer is not always some great event. Okay? Um, sometimes it is a few minutes in the morning. Sometimes it is, it should be this throughout the day narrative and conversation that we are having uh, with God. Praying without ceasing doesn't mean that you have to become a recluse, that you have to go somewhere else. If I'm going to pray without ceasing, well, I've got to be 
somewhere else all the time by myself in solitude. That's certainly not what Jesus is teaching us here. But I think that he's teaching us that there are times. There are times when finding the place to pray is vital. In fact, I think these short moments of prayer, the praying without ceasing, gives us this thirst to say, this is good, but at some point I just need to be alone with the Father for an extended period of time and to deal with the things that are plaguing my mind. So Jesus heads to this place, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes there for the purpose of prayer, and he teaches us the importance of place in prayer. That's the first thing, as we learn of him to pray. The second thing is that he is not alone at the start, and he reveals to us, secondly, the ache for partners in prayer. The ache, uh, the desire, the longing for partners in prayer, for other people to be around us. So Judas has already left at this point. Jesus and the eleven arrive in Gethsemane. And you notice there at the beginning, verse 32, they go to this place called Gethsemane. He says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he leaves eight of them there. And then he takes Peter and James and John and goes further into the garden, it would seem. And as he does that, he seems to let his guard down a little bit. Verse 33, he took with him Peter, James, and John. And at that point, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He's visibly distressed and troubled. And he says to them, he tells them that his, his very soul is filled with, with sorrow. He feels pain, that, it's like he feels the pain of death at the core of his being. He knows what is coming and he feels it in a deep way. Just pause for a minute and think about the humanity of Jesus in this. Often when I think about the humanity of Jesus, the first picture that usually comes to mind is Jesus in the hall of the boat sleeping. That's what I think about. I don't know why. It just reveals the humanity of Christ. But what better place to see the humanity of Jesus than here? Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is described as distressed and troubled and sorrowful. He feels like he is on the verge of death because he is. And he felt in that moment the way that many of us feel, young and old alike. So there's kids here. Kids, you have felt this. You felt your emotions overwhelm you and you feel distress. It goes right up into your heart and you're scared or you're, you're sad and you don't know how to explain how you feel. And it's scary. And Jesus knows how you feel when you're scared and when you're sad and you're overwhelmed. Of course, not just kids, right? We all face dark nights of the soul, as it's called. We don't know what to say or what to do. Sorrow and grief fill our hearts and our souls feel like they're, they're shaking. I mean, the amazing thing here, though, is not just that, that we've all felt that. It's not just the common human experience, but the fact that Jesus has felt that. That Jesus felt what we feel in that. He shared in that suffering. He's been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So what does Jesus do when he feels that? What's surprising to me is he doesn't just say, well, I'm the son of God. I can handle this on my own. Which is what we do, even though we're not the son of God. We assume that we can handle it on our own. Rather, what does he do? He turns to his friends, including the friend that he said is going to deny him. He just said that. He turns to them and he tells them what's going on in his heart, the ache in his heart. And he says, would you guys please watch and pray with me? I need you to be with me. 
and he shows me, he shows us in that that, that, that to value prayer and even to value this, these moments of solitude is not to disvalue community. Jesus is going to go and pray alone, but he is first bringing this group of men together and saying, my soul is sorrowful. His friends failed to watch with him, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he asked them to watch and to pray with him, to be near to him. Did you notice that he separates the disciples into two groups? I don't want to press this too hard, but at the same time, he comes and he has one group, this group of eight, sit, and then he invites Peter and James and John to come further in with him, and in that sense, he opened, in, in that moment, he opens himself up in a deeper way to them. And I think there's a, a lesson there about the fellowship that we can have as Christians with one another in the larger community, as it were, within the church at large, but yet there are relationships with, with which we're going to bear our souls a little bit more. And, and we're willing to do that. There are those that we are closest with that we will open up to more. I, I think the church as a whole is, is called to serve as this larger group of disciples, and yet there are those with whom we we're able to let down our guard more easily um, and more fully. That's not to say that you should be fake on Sunday morning. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that um, there are levels of relationship and camaraderie that we feel, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think to tell everyone the deepest pain that you're feeling would probably not be healthy. It, it'd probably be just as unhealthy as never telling anyone the deep pain that you feel. And so there's levels of relationship, but we need to understand that. That's easier said than done, isn't it? It's hard to bear your soul to someone. It's hard to tell someone the distress that we feel. It's good to do it, though. You know, when we walked the journey of Andrew's pregnancy and then finding out that Anne had Down syndrome, that was, that was hard. But in the midst of that, what I saw was this great value of a community, of, of this community where I felt this is the most natural thing to share with my church family. But also along that journey to have, to have my wife and to have certain friends that I could just come and cry with and they weren't going to judge me, but I could bear my soul and know that they were going to pray with me. I needed to spend some time on my own with the Lord, but I knew that they were with me, that they were watching, that they were praying with me. That's a gift, and we need that. Do you have those kind of relationships? Those that you can weep with and those you can rejoice with, people you can call on to pray. There's this great gift in the, group of, in the larger group of believers, and I love our Sunday nights that we pray with one another. And yet there's also deeper relationships that are unique. People whom we can show how, we, how sorrowful we feel, who we can ask to watch and pray with us. People that you can call at midnight, in the middle of the night, like Jesus is here, and say, would you please pray for me? You know, if Jesus sought help from his friends when he was distressed, then I think it makes sense for us to do the same thing to find brothers and sisters in Christ that we can reach out to. We all need that, all of us. And as hard as it is to build those relationships, we need to take those steps. So there's the place of prayer, the importance of place, the ache for partners in prayer. And then right along with that, we find the need for solitude in prayer. The need for solitude in prayer. Jesus asks the disciples to watch and pray. And then he goes away, and he prays by himself. He doesn't say watch and pray. He doesn't say let's 
the four of us pray together. I think there's a place for that. But it's interesting, he says, watch and pray, and then he leaves. He shows us that we seek the aid of others, but that our hope is in the Lord. That, that, that we see that as much as we need to bear our souls to our friends, there is a bearing of soul that happens when we are in solitude with the Lord that cannot happen in a group. That even our closest friends we can't open ourselves up to completely. But there is something mysterious that the Spirit does in the midst of prayer whereby He can open up our hearts and our very souls and the one who made them knows us in a deeper way and helps us to understand our own souls too. I think we learn this in prayer with others. We learn it as we pray on Sunday morning. We learn it as we pray on Sunday evenings. These are catalysts for private prayer. They push us into these deeper relationships to pray, but they also lead us into the garden where we wrestle with God in prayer. We cannot think that Sunday mornings and evenings, praying with others, that that is sufficient. It's not sufficient for our souls to only pray with others on a Sunday. They're wonderful, they're rich, they're meaningful, we should do it, and yet it, it cannot be enough. We need to be devoted to private prayer, to daily prayer, but also to moments when we say, I just need to spend a time of solitude with God in prayer. The thing that struck me the most this week, to be honest, occurs later in the passage, but I think it applies here. And it's when Jesus returns after the disciples have fallen asleep, and he says to Peter, could you not have waited one hour with me? And what struck me is that Jesus seems to think that waiting for one hour is kind of like the bare minimum. Now, I think that often we don't want to say that. Because we all, I, and I, in teaching on prayer, I've often said, start with 10 minutes, start with 15 minutes, if you can just do that. And I agree with that, that we need to have a consistency in our lives. And I'm encouraged, I'm encouraged by the fact that the disciples fell asleep. Because I have fallen asleep in trying to watch and pray for an hour. But I'm also encouraged to strive to be more faithful in longer periods of prayer. You know, there's different ways that we measure things. We measure milk in gallons. And you measure road trips in miles. And we measure ourselves in pounds. And we measure elephants in tons. <laughs> it would seem that we measure prayer in hours. Not just minutes, but hours. At least this kind of prayer. You know, I, I, on, I was shared with a couple people this morning. On, on Wednesday evening, I became discouraged and overwhelmed by the wonderful reality that there are a thousand things, wonderful things going on within our community that people are trying to reach Christ. This is a unique community and people are trying to step into it in different ways. And I had just tasted some of that and I just thought, I want to be a part of this and I don't even know how and I'm overwhelmed by it. And I had a meeting scheduled that was canceled and so I had this hour block. And the words that came to me in that moment were the words of Jesus where he said, couldn't you wait just an hour? Could I wait an hour? Could, could I spend an hour in prayer with the Lord and think about these things and seek Him and pour out my heart to Him? Would I seek a place of silence and invite others to pray with me and kneel before Him and spend an hour in prayer? What could happen if I would just say, I'm going to spend this hour devoted to prayer? Do I want you to spend 15 minutes? Yes. But other times when we could say, this is distressing me. I am overwhelmed by this. I am sorrowful over this. I need at least an hour to set aside and to commune with the Lord. 
I, I mentioned kneeling, and that's the last thing I want to bring out. So we, we thought about the need for solitude in prayer, and then fourth, the, the power of posture in prayer. The power of posture in prayer. We'll, we'll end here, and then we'll pick up the passage next Sunday. But the power of posture. You notice it says here that um, he invites them to pray with him, and then in verse 35, going a little farther to be by himself, he, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He fell on the ground. I think Jesus is, is overwhelmed at what's going on here. He's at least kneeling, if not laying on his face before the Lord. And there's something about that posture. As with place, you can pray anywhere. And with posture, we can pray sitting, standing, walking, kneeling. You can pray any way you want. But there is something unique about bowing before the Lord in prayer. I think maybe because we sit to do most things. We sit to watch TV. We sit to, to do our work. We sit to surf the internet and check Facebook and all these other normal things. We don't kneel when we're at work. <laughs> we, don't, we don't typically kneel when we're reading a book or watching TV. But we kneel to pray. And it sets that activity apart for us in a unique way. It may be that sitting feels normal, but when we would kneel, something changes even in our hearts used to be a part, I think I've shared this before, of a Sunday evening prayer group when I was in high school, became a part of this at the church I went to, large church, a lot of older members, and they invited us to be a part of this group. And so about five, six of my friends, we would show up at 5.15, 45 minutes before uh, the service, and we would be in there with a lot of men with uh, either balding or gray heads. They were older than us. And they would pray together, this group of sometimes close to 100 guys. And they would just share some requests from the front, and then the man who led it would say, well, let's pray. And everyone in that room, for the most part, with a few exceptions because of physical uh, reasons, would, would get out of their pew, they were pews, and turn around, kneel on the floor, and pray. That was the first time in my Baptist upbringing that I knelt to pray. And there was something significant about that. There was this transition that happened. We're not talking about prayer anymore. We're actually going to kneel down and pray. There's something powerful there, I think. I, I read this book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And in it, the author, uh, Tish Harrison Warren, she says this. She quotes a guy named Stanley Hauras. But let me read a, a portion of this. Uh, <laughs> this would be an example of distraction in prayer. You don't want to be in a place for this kind of thing. Theologian Stanley Hauras argues that to truly learn a story, we can't just hear it, we must also act it out. In our worship, and Hauras specifically cites the practices of baptism and communion, we act out the story of the gospel with and through our bodies. We must be taught the gestures that position our bodies and our souls to be able to rightly then retell the story, Hauras writes. And then he continues on. This is more quote from him. For example, while... We may be able to pray without being prostrate. I think prayer as an institution of the church could no longer be sustained without a people who have first learned to kneel. If one wants to learn to pray, one had better know how to bend the body. Learning the gesture and posture of prayer is inseparable from learning to pray. Indeed, the gestures are prayer. 
That's a thought to think about. Gestures are prayer. Is kneel, when we kneel, we are in some sense praying through that act. The, she goes on to, to share her own experience. Soon after seminary, I found to my horror that I couldn't pray. Suddenly words which had always come so easily fell flat. I had been through a hard year with an unwanted move, a broken relationship with a close friend, and a painful delay in my hopes for motherhood. I was hurt and grieving and could not find the words to invite God into deep places where I longed for him to meet and mend me. I felt like my words were a sad, deflated balloon tangled in branches, lifeless, stuck, and limp. In the midst of this, though words failed me, prayer without words, prayer in and through my body became a lifeline. I couldn't find words, but I could kneel. I could submit to God through my knees, and I'd lift my hands to hold up an ache, a fleshy, unnameable longing that I carried around my ribs. I'd offer up an achy body with my hands, my knees, my tears, my lifted eyes. My body led in prayer and led me, all of me, eventually even my words, into prayer. Love that. Because I think sometimes we just don't know where to start. And actually, we don't start with words sometimes. But sometimes we start with kneeling. And that's what leads us into prayer. I think because prayer is mysterious, we, we just log it in as speaking to God. Is that all that prayer is, though? Romans 8, these, these words speak about some of that mystery. Romans 8:26, Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, helps us in our weakness. What weakness? For we do not know what to pray as we ought. We don't know how to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I think sometimes in prayer we're too focused on what to say. Now, I say that, and that's dangerous, because there is a point. Prayer is communicating with God through our words often. But sometimes we become so focused on exactly what we need to say that we we miss the silence. I think we have these you know these verbal pauses that always come into our prayers, the ums and the the justs and those things. Why? Because we think that we have to be. If we're praying, then we're always talking. The space has to be filled constantly. But is there something about silence in prayers? There's something about seeking the Lord through the position of our body, through kneeling before Him and, and trusting that He understands that. That that's, that's our heart, that, that the posture of our hearts is reflected as, as we kneel before him, even if we just aren't even sure what to say in that moment. I don't know. I, you know, we'll talk more about Jesus' words, but there's not a ton of words recorded. It's not, it, it's, it's a one sentence, it's a couple sentences, a few sentences. Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Are there just groanings for which there are no words that the Spirit is interceding, even on behalf of Jesus in this moment? I don't know. But I think there's something powerful about kneeling in prayer, about laying prostrate in prayer, that tunes our hearts to be able to come before the Father. Now, I haven't said anything about what to say in prayer, and we're out of time. Um, And words are important. And yet, I think all of these things are so vital, especially as we think about these moments when we are distressed and when we are 
filled with anguish. We don't know how to pray. We don't know where to pray. Can we always get away? No. But there is something about the importance of place, of knowing a place to go, uh, to, to be alone with the Father. There's something about calling others to pray with you, and not necessarily talking a whole bunch and then praying a little bit, but rather saying, I'm going to pray, and I need you to watch and pray with me. There's something about being alone for an extended period of time, and not feeling like because I didn't fill that whole time with words that I wasn't praying, but that there is a mystery to prayer that even as we kneel before the Father, we are interceding with Him, and He is doing a work in us that we may not see, and the Spirit is speaking in ways that we cannot hear. And there's something wonderful that happens in that moment. I was overwhelmed on that Wednesday and came in on Thursday to pray and, and felt it even more. And I was in here because this is a place of silence for me. And again, I invite you to be, make this a part, but it was right here because it's carpeted and it's a little bit nicer than the wood floor. And I knelt and I prayed. And about a half hour later, I wasn't overwhelmed. I was actually excited about what God might do. That there was a moment, and I don't even know what I said. If, I, if These weren't beautiful words that I was praying. But spending the time communing with the Lord and, and speaking to Him with words, but also with my posture to say, you are in control and I am helpless in this moment. It may not always work that way. <laughs> but there is something that God does deep in our hearts when we would spend time laboring with Him in prayer, finding moments to commune with Him. So I commend to you, when was the last time that you went away found a spot and this may be hard, easier for some than others <laughs> but but that we would encourage one another that we would provide opportunity for others for spouses or for um, friends to get away and say why don't you spend some time in prayer unhurried and that we would pray with others we would watch with them we would call others to pray with us that we would be in solitude that we would give ourselves a block of time and that we would kneel before the Father we would wait on Him and that we wouldn't say we're too busy for all of this. Because in response to the stress of life, we find so many things that we think we're supposed to do. So many ways that we can deal with all the problems that we are facing. And prayer becomes our last resort. That's the last thing I'll do. After I try all of this stuff, then I'll pray. But prayer shouldn't be the last resort, right? It should be the first priority because it's the best thing to do. And it is effective. It is never a waste. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word here in Mark. And then I will close this in prayer. We thank you for Christ who has come to be our Savior and who has come to be our example and to teach us in all things. Would help us to learn from Jesus how to pray. When I think about what we sang earlier, that we should never be discouraged. And yet we are discouraged sometimes and we are sorrowful and we are overwhelmed. Help us to turn to you first 
to find that to be the response of our hearts that we would say that time spent in prayer would be the best thing for us to do to be alone with you to pour out our hearts to you because you are our refuge for us Lord, that you would intercede for us Lord I pray that you would um, teach us how to pray teach us how to wait in prayer Lord, help us to, um, when we fall asleep, to get back up and keep going and to continue to learn from you. So, Lord, I pray for this week, uh, for each person here, Lord, maybe there's a desire in their heart to, to spend some time in prayer. And I pray that that would not die as they walk out of this door, Lord, but that you would um, help us to take practical steps to instill time of waiting on you in prayer into our lives, whether it's early in the morning for a few minutes or whether if it's once a week or once a month or specific times that we are getting away and being silent before you and praying to you Lord teach us we have so much to learn I pray this all in Christ's name Amen <laughs>